Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 2005. And what are you waiting for, cowboy? A podcast? The movie? Brokeback Mountain. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we are going to blast them off into outer space. Right now, we are on a miniseries called Couple Goals, uh, and we have really run the gamut. This is the end of our selections, and next week we'll be going into our audience uh, selection, which I'm very excited to announce. If you don't know it already, we'll tell you at the end of the episode. But Amy... It's been so fun to kind of look at all these different couples and the way that these stories unfold that I really feel like you can fall in love so many times in so many different ways. Like, I don't feel tired of this genre. I thought in the beginning, like, oh, are we going to see the same type of story? And uh, after watching Brokeback, I'm like, no, it, it always, the underlying architecture is there, but the buildings always look different. Yeah, I mean, I think when we came up with the title Couple Goals, we both put an imaginary invisible question mark at the end of it because right. it's like, are these films about like perfect couples or are they just about like couples that are do things, make mistakes, screw up? And it, films about couples that make mistakes, I think, are so compelling, especially when the director doesn't feel like they have to hack on a happy ending. I love a romance where maybe at the end they don't wind up together. I mean, that's the story of most romances that any of us have ever lived, right? Well, I think we were talking about that, that idea of like, you may have a profound effect on someone's life as a partner, or someone might have a profound effect on your life as a partner, but they may not be your life partner, and they may not be the person who is perfect for you, but yet they they got something from you, or you gave them something, or you were something with them. And I feel like that is that longing, I think, of romance we always are looking to. Like, oh, what, what, what about that? I wish I would have went down that. Not that you are longing for it like I want out of something, but I feel like we we collect these like little stories of love throughout our entire lives. You know, it's kind of cool that we we also probably have very different, you know, relationships. I know it's silly to say that out loud, but I'm thinking about it right now. It's like, oh yeah, well, every relationship I've been in has been incredibly different. 
And yet they all are, you know, the same structure, but the buildings look different. No, it's true. I mean, some of my favorite people are my exes. I think that people enter your life, and if they're a positive person and not a, a toxic person, if they're a person who, like, introduces you to food or a country or a place, mm-hmm. like, I like valuing that relationship. I, I wish we, I don't know, could we reclaim our exes in a more gentle way if they're worth it? If they're not worth it, screw them. But if they are people who add to your life, I, I, I love the idea of kind of just having there be more of a, I don't know, a family of exes. That sounds insane. Yeah, I guess you can't have a family of exes. But what am I saying, Paul? I don't know what I'm saying. Well, I think I, I, I think adore that, certain of my exes. And if you're listening, hi. I'll take the opposite point of view and say you don't have to bring them back into your life because they may have been there for a perfect period of time and then they're gone. You know, it's sort of like this this fleeting thing. I, I don't think you have to surround yourself with those people because they may have helped you grow. They may have taught you that you need to grow without them and they're not the person that you need to be around. There's so many, and, and even the toxic relationships, I think, actually help you become a better person to be in a relationship with, uh, let you kind of bring a little bit of self-care to yourself. I think there's a lot of benefits. So I, you know, I am on the other side of that camp. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be friends with your exes. If you if that works out, great. I think it's tricky because I'm always under the idea that, well, if you are rejecting this person or that person is rejecting you, how do you maneuver it? I don't know. I think there has to be a level of like protection or caution there on some level. Like, you know, just like, you know, it, you may be able to be friendly, but you can't really go that deep with them again because I don't know, but maybe you can. Well, now you're making me want to be a troll. And I want to say, like, when quarantine is over, maybe I'll just pick a day, pick a bar. If you're my ex, come by. Let's get a beer. Let's all be friends. Surely wow. we must have something in common still. And they must all have something in common with this, with each other. If we all got along at a certain point in time, See, they could probably is... get a beer with each other. I'd still love to no. get a beer with them. No, this is where I disagree <laughs> with you because you were a certain person when you met them. But anyway, I, I but I digress. I, oh, maybe I'm you... remarkably consistent, Paul. It's kind of scary. By the way, I actually do believe that you would be a good person to be friends with after you. Like, I feel like that's your personality has that embedded in it. And I mean that in, as, as the utmost compliment. I feel like that's a, a really a good personality trait to be able to do that. Oh, that's so kind. But I, w- yeah. I will say... I. When I told myself I no longer had to be friends with certain exes, my life did get better. For a while, I prided myself on always being friends with my yeah. exes. There's a couple. Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. And by the way, it's okay. <laughs> it is okay. Well, um, this relationship is, uh, I guess it's an interesting conversation to talk about these people that we keep in our lives, that we may keep at arm's length. This film is really about lack of commitment to someone, whether it's the societal norms or whether it's just really something that's going on personally. I want to kind of break this down to you. So without any further ado, Amy, I mean, let's jump on our horses and unspool it. Is that supposed to be a sheep? Uh, I have no idea. I was trying for something and then I felt like, am I belittling the movie by doing that? Anyway, unspool it. The year is 2005. George W. Bush starts his second term. He authorizes government wiretaps of U.S. citizens and makes it nearly impossible for people with debt to file for bankruptcy. Hurricane Katrina decimates the South, flooding roughly 80% of New Orleans and killing over 1,600 civilians. The Oregon Supreme Court nullifies over 3,000 same-sex marriage licenses issued in 2004, deeming them to be 
unconstitutional. Pope John Paul II dies, Tony Blair is elected for his third term, and implements the Civil Partnership Act, which grants civil partnerships, including same-sex partnerships, the same rights and responsibilities as civil marriage. And the hot movies include Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Crash, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, and today's film, Brokeback Mountain. Amy, who's responsible? Who's in it? Who directed it? What's it about? Brokeback Mountain. It is directed by Ang Lee and adopted from a short story by Annie Pruel. It is the story of two men who fall in love one Wyoming summer as they mind a flock of sheep. And they grow up together, but they also mostly grow up apart. Uh, Jack is played by Jake Gyllenhaal, and he wants them both to just get their own ranch and live their lives. But Ennis, the quieter and more inward of the two, played by Heath Ledger, he just can't do it. When Ennis was a kid, he knew a man who got tortured and killed for being gay. So he decides to stick with his own wife and kids. And because of that choice, a lot of people and lives still get damaged in this film. Um, Michelle Williams and Anne Hathaway play the women in their lives. And you cannot watch this film and not be awed that this cast is all under 25 years old, under 25, and just exploding with talent and promise. Here, let's listen to a scene. Maybe you ought to get out of there. Find yourself someplace different, maybe Texas. Texas. Sure, maybe you can convince Alma to let you and Lorraine adopt the girls. And we can just live together herding sheep. And it'll rain money from L.D. Newsom and, and whiskey will flow in the streams, Jack. That's real smart. Boy, real smart. You want to live your miserable fucking life and well, go right ahead. Fine. I was just thinking out loud. Yep, you're a real thinker there. God damn. That's fucking twist. figured out, ain't I mean, gosh, I can't even say exploding with like potential because in Brokeback, they are already all amazing. You know, and, and Brokeback came out on December 5th, 2005, when the music world was nuts for the debut single of a 16-year-old kid who also seemed to have great things in store. The number one song when this movie came out, well, it was by Chris Brown and the song is Run It. Well, Amy, you know, we were talking about this last week. I haven't really thought or talked about Brokeback Mountain since, I think, 2005. And looking back on this film before I put it in again was like, wow, this movie was so important in the sense that it had these two very attractive straight men um, playing these parts. And I think to culture in general, that's always like a, a moment where people take notice, right? Where they're like, oh, okay. And we're at a time here in, in the country where, you know, gay rights and gay marriage is at the forefront and in the world it's going on as well. And I think this movie in many ways fell into a bin of a joke, a punchline, like, oh, broke back mountain. I remember like seeing Robin Williams even going around, like doing a lot of jokes about just like, guys fucking jokes, right? It was nothing like mean-spirited, but it was sort of like this movie did get kind of, I don't know, just pumped into this idea of like, that's what this movie is or something like that. Am I wrong on that? Or that's at least my interpretation of how this movie kind of gets culturally uh, held up to a certain degree. No, I I don't think you're wrong. I, I think in 2005 when this came out, people were really uncomfortable 
uh, with it, grappling with it, talking about it. And it was sort of easier to make it a joke. I mean, this movie became a punchline, like right after it came out. I mean, the very next year, Scary Movie 4 did their own Brokeback send up. Hello, is it me you're looking for? I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in your smile. You're all I ever wanted. And my arms are open wide. Cause you know just what to say. And you know just what to do. Ooh, baby. And I want to tell you so much. I love you. And also because, you know, YouTube and everything was like brand new around this time, people were using Brokeback as a way of like recutting other movie trailers to make them a Brokeback joke. Have you ever heard Brokeback to the future? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Well, I hope I'm not disturbing anything. Oh, uh, this is my uh, doc. My uncle. Doc. Brown. You sent me a letter. Clara. All you had to say is I don't love you and I don't want to see you anymore. Have you ever uh, been in a situation where you knew you had to act a certain way, but when you got there, you didn't know if you could go through with it? And Amy, it even was a part of Knocked Up that was cut out of the film. Take a listen to this. Who the fuck does Ang Lee think he is, man? I mean, you make a supposedly, you know, pro-gay movie... And you don't show one guy getting a Hummer the whole movie, man. You know? What am I, fucking six years old? I can't see a guy getting sucked off by another guy? I'm not a fucking kid. I could take it, in. I'm a realist, man. I like to see real shit going down. I see two gay guys in a tent in Brokeback Mountain. I want to see a fucking 69. I want to see an asshole eating out. You're telling me that shit doesn't go down? Jill mouth is practically watering the whole movie. Shove something in there, Eve. I love it we're starting out this conversation this way because going back and looking at clips from this time period, it felt a little bit like time travel to go to 2005 and see how people talked about this. I mean, let alone people not seeing like the act of love in full in this film. Like when they showed clips and trailers of it online, they usually cut out the part where you see Ennis and Jack kiss. Like, they didn't even want to show the actors kissing, like, even in media that was, like, really promoting it. Like, I was watching um, an Oprah episode, and Oprah took a lot of flack for, like, cutting out a bit where they kissed in the film, even though she was, like, having an hour to try to support it. Um, But you hear the way that she talks to Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger, and the whole movie from the very beginning is framed in, like, are you worried about this hurting your career? Isn't it awkward? Reassure everybody that you like women. You know, it's kind of jokey bro-y. Well, don't you think that like part of the narrative of this movie was that, oh, this is the movie where Heath Ledger met Michelle Williams and they fell in love. I mean, that's the other thing I know about this movie. I mean, I know a lot about the movie, but like that was the narrative. I mean, and to talk to what you're saying too, like the Utah jazz owner, Utah jazz, um, Larry Miller, he pulled the film from his entertainment complex in Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake, because he was like, you know what? This homosexual content is a danger to family values. And there was an idea where this was, I think, in many respects, because it wasn't safe and it was so plain. 
And it's a movie that is really a romance. It really is about this love between these two men. And while there are these elements of how they have to live their lives, there's nothing really scandalous about it. So in a way, I think we had a harder time embracing just truly watching this relationship because they they consummate it in the first 20 minutes. And I think in my mind, I was like, doesn't that happen way later in the film? No, it's like right at the top. I mean, to your point, I kind of want to even just play a little bit of the Oprah clip because I found it really frustrating to listen to because the one thing they don't talk about is the actual like love and romance, like the the actual meat of what the movie is about and that what their relationship is about never gets talked about because it's all about the actors being awkward. Let's listen to that and then let's keep talking about it. Really secure about yourself to do a movie about uh, two gay men in love and then not worry about being typecast. I'm sure when you first read this script, that must have crossed your mind. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. uh, I heard that it was the gay cowboy movie and I I really didn't want to have anything to do with it. I was 16 years old at the time. Really? Yeah. So um, it had been around, the script had been around for years. So... When I finally heard Ang Lee was going to do it, I read the script, and it was the, really the most beautiful story I'd ever read, love story, and yeah. uh, I couldn't not do it, and it didn't really cross my mind at all. And you, Heath? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think there was a certain level of, um, uh, you know, anxiety, and there were fears, and, and you know, the risks uh, bled into my initial um, reaction. Um, but then that kind of disappeared, and I was just left with this beautiful story. Yeah. Um, it felt important. It felt like a story that had never been put to screen. Yeah. Um, I think if, if we knew the response to the movie, too, before we did it, I don't think either of us would probably have done it. Why? I just don't know if we knew that it would have become what it's become and, and, and what it's meant for a lot of people. But I think ultimately, you know, you have to go and you have to jump into it. And if you're thinking about a response from people yeah. while you're doing it, there's just there's no way you yeah, can do it, right. especially some of the things. no one's ever going to mm-hmm. see it, you know, really? in order to allow yourself to kind of expose yourself and be vulnerable and... Yeah, especially the stuff that we we do Exposed. in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say, fellas. You're exactly right. Like, this is a movie about a relationship. You know, it's not a movie about kissing. You know, it's right. not a movie about, like, your first time with this person. It's a movie about, like, how do you keep a person in your life? How do you stay connected to somebody? It's, it's about like, the deeper yeah. emotions of this relationship and not the physical. So the fact that so much of the conversation concentrated on the physical is really frustrating. Well, and I think there's always this idea, and this kind of back to the point that I was trying to make before, and I guess I'm, I'm just going to say it and forgive me if I'm stumbling or, or not saying it right, but there's like, you know, while one of the characters does die and is killed, this movie isn't really about that. It isn't about like, oh, one of them gets AIDS or one of, you know, it doesn't play into the, I mean, it does and it doesn't. And I think that that is a tricky thing in this point for people to deal with. And now we have things like Love, Simon, and, you know, there's so much more openly received. I think we've matured. We've matured in these, you know, uh, 16 years in a, in a major way. And thank God we haven't. But we were talking about this when we were talking about the Promising Young Woman episode, like, that early 2000s was really, there's a lot of misogyny there. And, you know, and, and thankfully we have matured since then. I'm, I'm happy that we're there, but it is interesting. This is like really 
the first like break of the of the wall, I think, in, in many respects, where it's out there for everyone to kind of be uncomfortable around or not everyone, but a majority of people. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that in your year facts, you brought up that thing about Oregon canceling marriages, because I think that's important for me to kind of remember so I can feel more charitable about the empathy gap that feels like is lacking between 2005 and today. You know, it's 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 hard to remember how uncomfortable the topic of gay marriage felt back then, you know, in, in the public conversation. And it feels like this film kind of entered as almost like this kind of, I don't know, saber. Like there's this big divide between like the critical reception to the film and the public jokey reception to the film in that Critics groups like loved this film. I mean, this was Brokeback was like hands down the most awarded film that year across the board. It's actually the first film to win Best Director at the Academy Awards, Directors Guild Best Director, BAFTA Best Director, Golden Globe Best Director, and Critics Choice Best Director. So that's and a, then lose Best Picture to Crash, Crash, which people which, kind of interpreted as the Academy choking and not not being willing to award it. I remember being at an Oscar party and when they said the word Crash, the entire room stood up and started screaming like 35 people who are all eating um, pigs in a blanket. I mean, it's so par for the course with the Academy Awards and picking these pictures. I mean, I feel like that's why, you know, when it goes the other way, like when Hurt Locker wins over Avatar, people are like, wait, oh, wow, it worked the right way. You know, sometimes it doesn't always do that. It it kind of goes with the populist choice and, and nothing. Or Moonlight winning over La La Land. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, gosh, even, I mean, even just the gap between that makes it clear how much we've come since Brokeback Mountain, I hope. Or at well, least I mean, in this yeah. one narrow way that we measure social progress being the Oscars, which is kind of maybe the weakest way, but it, at least, at least there's a change. You talked about a little bit before about the spear and look, I'm sure there are people gay historians, uh, film critics that know more about this than me. But I also believe that like the beginning tip of this gay culture into mainstream, I believe, starts with like Will and Grace, a major network show in 1998. And that's a while before this movie comes out and it's just getting people comfortable. But that show doesn't touch. It's very sitcom. It's not like you're not. It's like you're gay, but we're not going to really go there, go there. But yet it gets people comfortable. But this is a movie that I think because of the leads, it forces attention. Like I remember there's like a movie like Patrick Stewart and Jeffrey. And there there are obviously tons of work out there, you know, written and starring gay actors and writers and, it, and achieving success. Like I remember seeing these films, but I think something about these two actors who are viewed in many respects as like sex symbols, you know, um, doing this part, like forced it into the mainstream in a way that nothing else could. Like that was like, that's what got a lot of people's attentions too. Like, I mean, and it's a beautiful story, but I feel like that's why people are talking about this movie. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to kind of look back at how hard it was to get this movie made in just like the few years leading up to it. You know, I mean, the original short story came out a year before Matthew Shepard was killed. And, you know, people knew there was power in the story and that it needed to be told. And yet every time they tried to push it forward, the main problem was that they couldn't get actors to agree to it. Like actors would sort of say they might do it and then back out and then say they might do it and then back out. And I, I think one of the stories is like when Ang Lee was first talking to Heath Ledger, he was like, listen, this part is actually cast right now. 
but I have a feeling this person will also drop out. And if they do, the part is yours. But the fear that was involved, which, I mean, I don't want to put the weight on the actors. Like when you see actors be that scared, to me, it means that these actors are under a lot of pressure from their people and what they're hearing and like being told, if you do this, it will ruin your career. And I think it's always just like an evidence of all the below the waterline tension that we can't see. This is also a time where I think people are nervous, you know, to 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 be open about their sexuality, you know, for fear of it drying up all the work. Could you see these gentlemen, gentlemen, could you see these men in another film where they were playing heterosexual after this? I don't know. You know, like, I think that that's probably the fear a lot of these actors have. I mean, you know, you go back to the 60s and Paul Newman and Robert Redford were both asked to play a gay couple. And they're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. You know, and you have, you know, people who are, you know, being very successful in in film and not wanting to address that part because I think that the the Hollywood system kind of eat them up. And the only ones that are safe, you know, before this movie comes out are these movies like The Birdcage, right? And we all are safe with Robin Williams. And it's a big, goofy, it's, you know, it's not a gay man playing it. We know who he is, but it's, it's like a stereotype of a gay man. And then you have like, you know, uh, Tu Wong Fu or, you know, and that's not, you know, that's different because it's a little bit more of like this, you know, this yeah. like drag culture. Yes. But there's like this A movie this that thing. I deeply love, actually. That's love a great that movie. movie. But not a movie that is mainstream, right? Like yeah. I'm talking like, the, you know, so it's like, it's a very bold film for Ang Lee to make, for these actors to make, and the way that they told the story. And it's not, and I guess this goes back to my original point, it's not melodramatic more than a romance. This is a romance film. And it's a beautiful romance film, regardless of anybody's sexuality. It adds a layer to it, but that the story is told very much the same way that you would tell a story about, you know, you could see this movie told about, you know, maybe a couple having an affair as much as you can see this. And obviously there are other elements, I know, but but I think that that's, that's what makes this movie a little bit more scary. It makes it more, you know, uh, to the public at this point. Yeah, you're it's exactly right. not laughing right. at it. No. Oh, oh, and I just remembered uh, two of the actors who turned it down. Um, this is back when the movie was uh, optioned by Gus Van Sant. He was going to make it. Mm-hmm. And um, he reached out to, I think, Matt Damon and Joaquin Phoenix. And both of them backed out, backed out, which is, you know, I'm not calling them out at all. I'm just sort of calling out the fear that I think was in the climate at the time. Well, I mean, and, and Annie Prue, like she was even like shitting on Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, she was like, what he did in Capote, that's less skill than the actors in Brokeback Mountain. And I think it's the idea of maybe, and we're, we're both kind of, I think, searching for this, but caricature. You're calling out in, Capote because like that, that's Philip Seymour Hoffman beat Heath Ledger for the Oscar. Yes. Yeah. Exa- yes. And, and I think this is like, we're going from caricature to actually realize character, right? I feel like it's, you can't hide. These are real people or they are as real as anybody else is in this film. And, and I think that that's, you know, again, just kind of breaking it down a little bit, that that's something there. Like, there's something so realized about both of these performances and you know it's like it made me miss uh, Heath Ledger so much life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's just like get into the actual film part of the film. Yeah. I mean, the way we see these two characters meet. I mean, first, like, Ang Lee is like, behold the Wyoming Vista, you know, mm-hmm. it, which is just like shot with just this almost grandeur that seems to make people and cars seem small. You know, like individual lives just seem so tiny in this mm-hmm. landscape that he's filming at the beginning as you watch, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal's truck kind of drive up. He's heading to Randy Quaid's like sheep trailer where he's going to get his sheep trailering job. And he's like making, he's, he sees Heath Ledger also waiting for a job. And there's just this like awareness that maybe is going only from like Jake Gyllenhaal to Heath, but like Jake is just kind of looking at him in the mirror, staring at him, trying to get a sense of him. And you know, from the beginning that Heath is just a guy who just kind of keeps himself hidden. Like he's hiding under his hat as much as he can and like not making eye contact, not being a guy who's going to like, talk it is not so much like a meet cute as like a meet vibe like they're picking up on yeah. each other's vibes but well, not- like when he's shaving and looking at him and i was trying to picture like if i didn't know anything about this movie how am i reading this scene it's impossible to look at that first scene and not bring something to it you know but like there is something with you know immediately jake gyllenhaal really enters in the complete opposite of Heath Ledger. You know, he's, you know, the way that he's shaving right out there, he's he's doing private things publicly. And not that shaving is a very private thing, but, you know, he's not afraid to show himself versus this other character. I also wanted to say, when we get to it, I want to compare and contrast uh, the open and the end and that wide open of the open and the very small of the end. But I, I love this introduction to them and I want to also just call it one more thing and say, God damn it. If Randy Quaid didn't go crazy, mm-hmm. what would we be getting from him? Because he is fucking great. Like he is a great actor. And I was having a conversation with my friend about this. I was like, he is a person that right now would be cleaning up. I feel like as like in all great independent movies, people will be loving him. But this is a kind of the beginning of Randy Quaid going nuts too. You've heard about this whole story, right? No. Oh, Okay. This is wild. Randy Quaid sued Focus Features. He said that this company misled him into thinking that this is a low-budget art house film with no prospect of making money. He saw it as a ruse to get him to lower his salary. At the time of the lawsuit, the film had earned $160 million, and Quaid dropped the lawsuit in May, seemingly after Focus agreed to pay him a bonus. However, Focus denied that any payment ever took place. Uh, they said that the circumstances of him dropping the suit are as mysterious as the circumstances under which he filed the claim. Uh, just like the beginning of Randy Quaid just being like, I didn't get paid enough for this hit. Like if I knew it was going to be a hit, you could have paid me more. But that's, I mean, then that part of the whole <laughs> it's independent film. I mean, like you don't know, you don't know. No, this nobody movie. thought this would be a hit. Yeah. And also he doesn't do that much. He has a couple of scenes, but they are very good. I mean, let's listen yeah. to kind of talk about what he expects of his men when they go out to take care of his sheep. Now, what I want is the camp tender, 
to stay in the main camp where the Forest Service says. But the herder, he's going to pitch a pup tent on the QT with the sheep, and he's going to sleep there. You eat your supper and breakfast in camp, but you sleep with sheep, 100%. No fire, don't leave no sign. You roll up that tent every morning in case the Forest Service snoops around. You know what I love about how he's kind of setting up for these men? He's The Randy Quaid character is basically telling uh, Jack and Ennis, you guys are going to go out there and be like a fake family. You're going to set up a little fake home. You know, you're going to set up camp. You're, one of you is going to cook. One of you is going to tend to the sheep. You need to put on this pretense of taking care of your family, your family being like my sheep. And he sets these two men off to kind of st- deliberately live a fraudulent life. And that's like what really hit me about watching them go out into the wilderness of Brokeback Mountain for the first time is like watching them kind of like, I'm the strong guy carrying this baby lamb. I have this baby lamb tucked into my backpack. You know, this kind of shared mission and shared homesteading that they're doing together. They're reliant on each other. I mean, even the way that they talk to each other when they're like out in the tents, they're having like spouse conversations, complaining about food, complaining about the commute. Yeah, I'm commuting four hours a day. I come in for breakfast, I go back to the sheep, evening get embedded down, come in for supper, go back to the sheep, spend half the night checking for damn coyotes. Gary got no right making me do this. I, I just think they're having so much fun in these scenes. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think their history is before they are, before they, you know, physically connect? I mean, I think Ennis has no history. Like, they're, they're talking about sin, right? And he's mm-hmm. like, I've never even done anything. That is a sin, because right. he just hasn't had any chance to. Like, he's lived his whole life alone and bouncing around. Yeah, but the way that he attacks that sex scene feels like he... I don't know, there's something about it. I was like, oh, you know, I don't know if it, it is the fantasy of it or what he... Like, I guess maybe in my mind... I thought he was like a virgin. But yeah. then when I watch it, I'm like, I don't think he is, but I don't know. It's interesting because I, I feel like Jake Gyllenhaal's character is aware, you know, or because again, we're talking about this is in the 60s, right? And and I think that Jake's character is at a level comfortable with being gay, right? Like he understands who he is and what he wants. I don't think that he's falling into it. I think that like he's the one that really motivates the relationship. But then when you look back and you go, oh, here's Heath Ledger's character. He, I think there's a part of you that goes, he knows who he is, but he's hiding it. And because of his dad telling him that story when he was a kid and and seeing that man, you know, who was just brutalized. Um, Yeah. Let's listen to that story, actually. I'll tell you there. There were these two old guys ranched up together, down home. Earl and Rich. And they was a joke of town, even though they were, they were pretty tough old birds. Anyway, they, they found Earl dead in an irrigation ditch. Took a tire on to him. Spurred him up and drug him around by his dick till it pulled off. You seen this? Yeah, I was about nine years old. My daddy, he made sure me and my brother seen it. 
hell, for all I know, he done the job. And so you have this 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 person who knows they can't be who they are. But I was wondering, had he never done it before? And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I just wanted to see what you thought. You think that that was his first time? I think so. I mean, I don't know if it's his first time with any person, but I mean, he seems like he has like a sweet old fashioned relationship with Alma before they get married. I don't know if they're like going off into barns before they got married. Right. So maybe, I mean, maybe, but it, is it that hard to figure out? Maybe I'm, this is again, my heteronormative point of view of stuff. Like he just seems to really take control. And I think in, in idealized and maybe fictionalized pieces of cinema, the virgin is not the aggressor, right? Like even though that like Jake Gyllenhaal's character like pushes it forward, I, I was like, I was like, so that mindset of me I was like, I'm just trying to think about like oh, what this character has done. So that was the thing that was different to me. Not that you know, I was like, oh, I wonder because I think I always thought the same thing. Like like oh, Jake is the more comfortable with himself. He has been there and he's like leading him through it. But it wasn't. It didn't necessarily play that way to me when I saw it. But again, I have no idea. I, I'm coming from an extremely uh, hetero point of view on this. Well, I mean, we can compare it at least to the love and basketball scene where it feels mm-hmm. like here is a one, here is the person who's done this before ushering a person into yeah. it gently. And that isn't what happens here. I mean, there is kind of like an unspoken communication that happens with them in that scene that feels like it's building off of everything we've even seen before. Like even, even just the way like they get ushered out of Randy Quaid's office, like he gives them a look and they know that means to leave. Like yeah. there is something in the kind of silent way they walk through the world where they are incredibly observant people who communicate non-verbally. And, and well, it's I feel a like typical that cowboy, with, right? It's yeah. like that cowboy, that idea of a cowboy, like this kind of, you know, they have all the aspects of what, you know, cinema to paint a cowboy as, you know, strong, well, yeah. style, silent, sturdy, you know. And that's kind of what I love about how this movie, I think, backdates the cowboys we've seen in the past. Like we've seen a lot of movies on this show where there's like the strong, silent, loner cowboy movie archetype, right? I mean, that is like one of the top 10 American archetypes. And then to get to know Heath and why his character is alone and so silent and not talking, it makes you almost imbue those characters with a deeper backstory. Like who have they, you know, loved? This isn't just like the little Missy back at home at the cabin that got burned when John Ford was like, let's burn it. You know, we're going to make it crazy. It's almost like the life that you see Ennis settle for, like, deepens the movies of the past. And I I love that when, like, you get to know a character that kind of adds life to characters who maybe didn't even have it, but it makes sense. Well, but here's the thing. What I think makes that so, why what you're saying is so true is because we see the joy and the playfulness of this relationship blossom. You know, when Randy Quaid is spying on them, or not spying on them, he just happens to catch them in this moment. They are so playful with each other. And they are so sweet with each other in other moments of the film that the facade is dropped. And it's a different facade than the way you see Heath with Alma. Like when he's on the couch drinking the beers, watching TV, and she wants to go out. Like there's there's still that cowboy archetype. And I love what you're saying. Like, oh, let's go deeper. But you, these characters are capable of that playfulness, that love, that tenderness. And we see it. So when you don't see it, it's almost more shocking. It's like, oh, what is 
what's going on here? Like what it like it and, and I think there's a moment in it, this film that really like I just love it so much when he gets the first postcard from uh from Jake Gyllenhaal's character and you you see him get it and you don't know what the reaction is gonna be. And you see him write and put it in and you see that he just writes, you bet. And that you bet, I like words have never popped off a a page more. It's like there's so much joy. And then you see the way he walks out of that. Like there's so much love there that I think it 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 really paints the other side of the film in such an interesting way. I mean, I'm just kind of fascinated by the whole thing. I think it's like, I think that what you're talking about, that inner life versus outer life, but we get to see them in two very unique ways. I, I could not agree more. I mean, the, that we see him light up and then we see that light fade. I mean, to me, that's like one of the heartbreaking things about his relationship with Alma is, you know, Alma's working at the grocery store and he comes in with the kids and he doesn't know what condiments are. I love that. I don't know. Is uh, Alma here? Uh, yeah, she's in the condiments, huh? The what? Uh, ketchup. Thanks. And he feels absolutely fine, like leaving the kids with Alma, not caring about her, not caring about her job, not caring about her work, not respecting her. But then immediately when it's like, oh, he can go out fishing with Jack, he can go out fishing with Jack, like, he doesn't care about his work. Like he was, he's willing to take risks with his work that he wouldn't do for her. Like Ennis puts Jack in his priority of like well above Alma, you know, and lets her know she's second best. Like lets her see that he's only lit up for this other guy. And it's like when she gets a glimpse into the light and the love and the joy he's willing to give to another person, her world seems even darker. You know, I don't think there's anything more heartbreaking than realizing the person you want to make happy more than anything else in the world, gives their happiness to somebody else, cannot well, give their happiness to you. And she gets to witness that, the lack of consideration he has for her. I mean, I want to talk about that scene too, where he gets into the fight during the 4th of July. By the way, the cinematography in this movie is breathtaking. It's beautiful in every way. But the that fight scene, in his mind, you feel like he is doing it for her, but he's not doing it for her. And that's why I think that she's so kind of repulsed by that moment he is living with this, or at least this is the way I read it. Like he's living with this anger. Like he want, like he is, he's raging inside. And, um, and I don't think he would ever do that. Take that out on Alma. I think he like, I don't even think he respects, like we said, I don't think he respects her. I think he, I think that Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway have a better relationship than Alma and Ennis, because I feel like, she like knows who she is. She's doing her thing. Boom, boom, boom. Like, not to say that she doesn't deserve love, but they are, they are agreeing on what their relationship is to a certain degree. Whereas Alma, I think, is always chasing it. And what this movie does so beautifully is it cuts to it cuts to all those points immediately. Like, okay, they meet. Twenty minutes. They they you know they have sex. He comes. You know, Jake Gyllenhaal comes to meet Heath. Within two minutes or 30 seconds even, Alma catches them kissing. Like, this movie is lean. It's like, it, yeah. there's they're, not They're not like, playing out the suspense. Like, oh, yes. no, she found out. Yes. It's, it's like, like, what right do you there. do when you know that you're married to somebody who sees you as, like, second best? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I don't think this movie is that over the top in its criticism of America, like, visually. You know, I'm trying to think. I'm thinking of things like... George C. Scott and Patton, like yelling in front of the American flag. Like it's not, it doesn't usually go there. It's more just 
pragmatic. Like, this is how it is. It's not great. This sucks, but this is how it is. Like, there's a flat-footedness to the way that it criticizes American morality and priorities, except in that firework scene, which, like, it pops because this film otherwise I don't think does that kind of, like, visual metaphorical storytelling in that way of, like, Here's the here are the fireworks and it's incredibly patriotic and here's the wife cowering because her husband is terrifying her. It, there's it, it almost feels like a bit much like it's beautiful but you can really feel like Aang kind of swinging for the fences further than he does in rest in the rest of the film which is so restrained. Well, because I think what that scene does and correct me if I'm wrong is it underlines that she doesn't know him, right? Because what I think she's seen of him up until this point is this kind of sweet guys and talk like this and just be, you know, quiet and this. And so that moment is like, whoa, who is this? Who did I marry? If this is true, what else is true? And I think that that's something that a lot of people feel like when you see your partner do something that is so uncharacteristic. That's why I've always, I mean, I'm a big believer in, I mean, so many people are going to disagree with me, but I don't care. Um, I always believe that you shouldn't marry anybody until you know them for a year because I feel like you can understand somebody like in a year, you'll see a whole cycle of their life. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully, I mean, there'll always be new things to pop out, but you know, you got to let the guard go down to a certain degree. Um, and I feel like that in that moment, uh, what we're seeing is, Oh, I've now I'm in it with this person. I'm just seeing this new side of him and I don't know, where that's coming from because it wasn't even really directed at them. Like he just, he went out looking for a fight the same way that like Hall goes to Mexico looking to get laid. He's looking to get into a fight. And I mean, in you, in like that, that scene when he does it to the guy in the, in the cab of the car, like it's such a, that's how he deals. He's got to keep it all locked up. He can't, yeah. he can't let it out. It's like he's looking to feel something. He's looking to get hurt. He's looking to punish himself. He's looking to like, I mean, the line even in their own relationship between like love and aggression gets blurry. You know, they kiss, they punch, they kiss, they punch, like sometimes in the same scene, which yeah, I mean, in a way, part of that is so universal, I think also to all relationships. I mean, I, I don't know if you and, and June are big wrestlers, uh, but yeah. you know, the wrestling relationships where you like to kind of be like, oh, no, I'm going to fight you off. No, yeah. you're going to no. fight me off. I mean, it is kind of, blurry in uh sometimes with them it's like extra blurry and and then you have like heath just like throwing his body on, on the pyre of this movie and like getting hurt i mean in that cab scene like he gets really hurt i mean let's yeah. talk about it i had to hit a brick wall uh with my fists and i you know i just by the end of the day i just had blood pissing out of my hand and uh um uh, and the other time was when i had to get beaten up outside a pub uh, uh, after I had the fight with Alma in the kitchen and I, I go and I, I smack a guy through the car and then he drags me to the ground. The stuntman was actually paid to let me hit him in the head and he was like an ex-hockey player so I hit him in the head and my fist just like crunched. You know, I broke his nose but he didn't even know and, and, and then he just dragged me out of the car and kicked the <laughs> out of me and actually really kicked the <laughs> out of me and uh, that was actually, that was the last night shooting so wow. they just said go for it. The idea that they hired a stuntman and then got the stuntman to agree it was okay to hit him as hard as they could. Like, like they're, they're basically paying you to be a, a UFC fighter stuntman. And the guy wow. gets his nose broken. Like, wow. that is, I didn't know you could do that, actually. I didn't know, I didn't know that was actually okay. You can pay somebody to say, like, can I break your nose? I mean, the scene's <laughs> well, even in the dark. Like, is it that but, worth it? But, do you, but don't you think it, like, 
like the Harrison Ford and Air Force One story. My friend is Xander Berkeley, a great actor, fantastic uh, character actor, Sid and Nancy, Air Force One, um, 24, Walking Dead. And, you know, he was doing this fight with with uh, Harrison Ford on Air Force One. He's like the, one of the main bad guys. And Harrison Ford's like, yeah, yeah, I know how to fight. And just fucking cold clocked him in the face and broke his nose. Like that to me seems like overzealous acting. Like I remember I was doing a panel where I was hosting. uh, I was a big fan of Lost and Dim Lindelof asked me to host the 10 year anniversary of the show. And it was really, we were at the Kodak Theater, really fun. And I remember talking to all the different characters about the actors, about like their characters and, and what they learned. And one of the actors, I always remember this. He said to me, he's like, always be wary of young actors who are trying to act because that's when you'll get the most hurt. And it was uh, the gentleman, I'm forgetting his name right now, who played John Locke on the show. Uh, and he was like, yeah, he got, he's like, I got a rib broken and a nose broken by an actor who's like, I'm acting now. And I feel like that, that sequence, <laughs> might, that, anyway, all, a long way to go to say that I think that that sequence may have been like, I'm in, I'm so in character that I'm going to fucking break your nose. And, and I, and I've had that experience happen to me, like, uh, with, but not like, um, I had to do a bunch of stunts on a show and then you'd see some people like, Oh no, I hadn't, I know how to throw it, but you know, it, it's such a controlled thing, but that's such a, that, that fight is so small. It's in such a small space. There's no big swings. But anyway, my thought is that Heath Ledger got too into the role. <laughs> I mean, can we blame that all just on a historical legacy going back to Montgomery Cliff? If you're Heath, like you grew up, I'm sure, worshiping like Brando and Dean. I haven't looked that up, but I kind of feel like I don't have to, right? Can yeah. I, can I just say that? I feel like yeah. that's probably true. Um, and like living in character. I mean, like that was part of, I think, a little bit. There was a tiny bit of strife on the set between Heath and Jake Gyllenhaal because Jake really loves to improvise. Mm-hmm. And Heath was like, I am in this character. Like, I'm not coming out. Like, I'm not coming out of my lines. Like, these are the lines I'm saying. You know, like, and he was just living it. Like, he was living really, really deep in it. And well, then I mean, Heath, I think yeah. being being ugh, one of our top two greatest losses, him and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, ugh. Like to lose both of them. I'm going to throw Chadwick in there too. And now, Chadwick. Too. Yeah. And Chadwick and Chadwick. You're right. I, was, I was thinking about them just because of that Oscar showdown. Like they, they model, you know, the new actors. It's like, you keep kind of picking up like the techniques of the people you love and where they picked it up from. And it kind of becomes yeah. this like unbroken lineage of like to act is to get hurt. Well, and, and I think by the way, three things I want to hit on. First of all, Ang Lee said, if he made this movie in the sixties, he would have loved it to be Paul Newman and Montgomery Clift as the two cowboys. Oh, that's which too I think pretty. Is, I couldn't take it. I couldn't. But this take movie it. is very pretty. Um, Did you ever then, hear the story that like I think it's Paul Newman and James Dean? I think it's them had a threesome with Eartha Kitt, and all I want in life is for somebody just to make wow. the movie about their romantic weekend. Just holy like, holy cow! I come love on. that. To me, though, like the biggest problem is like who do you cast to play them? Like who who could be them? Honestly, I think Tessa Thompson would make a really good Eartha Kit, but who the fuck is going to be Paul Newman? Oh, but you don't want to see it. I don't think you want to see like, I don't like, I don't think it's like one night in Miami. I don't think like you like I don't like I feel like that's just like. Like, I love it as a legend. I love like there's like I don't need to see like I don't know if the conversation was great that weekend. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, <laughs> I don't know if there is like I just think there's some hardcore fucking going on there. And that's great. Um, and I never need to know. But it's like that's a great Great fun time for those uh, those peeps. Uh, but now I you want to prove see. that they had deep conversations. Now I just want to <laughs> prove it so that you'll agree with Write me it. that we should make it. Write it. All right. 
doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I will say that I do think that that improvisation that Jake brings to this role is actually really great for the film because he needs to be a lot more light on his feet around Innes. Like Innes is in the, like Innes is the tree, right? And Jake is showing him like, come, let's do this. Let's, he's constantly trying to break him out of it. And I think that that, that yin and yang, while it may have irritated Heath, it's kind of what you see in the film. It's that push pull of the two of them. And there is a respect there, but they are living, they are different characters. Like Jake Gyllenhaal isn't the cowboy that Innes is. He's not. He's he's a different energy. Um and, yeah. and you would I love yeah. it when you cut later on to the film and he's like Jake Gyllenhaal's at a party and he's wearing like a black leather cut it like jacket. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that that's like Texas cowboy shit. That's like I own a ranch. I don't work on my ranch kind of shit. Right. Like, yeah, they grow in different ways. And like Jake and, is yeah. more, in, I don't know if Jake's more interested in money, but he's definitely a bit of a gold digger, but like, I mean, do you, I, I feel like him being a gold digger is what makes him be with Anne Hathaway, right? Like that's the first thing he learns about her is like her dad is rich and then she comes over to hit on him. I think he is, he's taken by her because he knows nothing about her when he watches her ride the horse, right? Like he knows, and I think these are men who are going, we need to get together because at one point Jake Gyllenhaal said how long are you going to be single again I'm doing great line readings uh, but like you know he's like how long are you going to be single like how, how can you do this you know he's uh, I think that Jake just knows Jake plays the game like he's ahead of it he has a uh, you know I, I don't know the year but he has a he has a post Stonewall or maybe pre Stonewall idea like okay I can be gay I can do this I can go to Mexico I can have a boyfriend and I'm going to follow these rules I'll make my wife happy that's why his like his drama with his wife isn't really there but I think what you see with him is he's leaving too many clues around like he's let, like that leather jacket like the fact that that guy at that you know reception they're at you know uh Oh David Harbour David Harbour oh yeah who who says like he gets that he's gay, right? Like he, he gets yeah. like the, and I feel like Anne Hathaway gets it. People seem to get it. Like Jake seems to kind of dare people to get it. Like when he tries to hit on the rodeo clown and the rodeo yes. clown just knows. Yes. You know? And I, I feel mean, like he's, he's not hiding. He's, he's being, if anything, coy. And that's, what's going to get him in trouble. I don't know. I think he's hiding a bit more than that, but like, I think he's paranoid. It, maybe that's also why he gets together with Anne Hathaway is it happens like right after the rodeo mm-hmm. clown thing. So he's like, okay, all these people at the bar are now whispering about me. I will show them. I will now be dancing with Anne Hathaway and, you know, boning in the truck. And like, I will reassert so that nobody gets more suspicions about me. I think Anne Hathaway is, it's heartbreaking to watch the life get drained out of her. You know, like she, really? she's such like this beautiful, ripe, 
positive, joyous person riding around in her little red outfit with her hat on and like the exuberance, you know, when they're in the backseat of her car that she has and you watch her just get drained, drained and drained. Mm -hmm. Like the color goes out of her face. The color goes out of her hair. She starts bleaching it more blonde and wearing it more stiff. And at the end, she's just got like those red lips and the red kind of claws, but she just seems utterly broken like she you know gave what? her joy yeah. to this man you know you're, like, you know you're right like he vampired her i think the difference is i think that heath ledger cared about michelle williams i don't think that jake gyllenhaal cared about anne hathaway and you don't get to see that push pull the only because truly the only scene that you see of their relationship of merit like of real merit is the thanksgiving scene Right. Like that's yeah. like, I mean, Which and you is get more that about like him battling for masculinity with his dad in law. Yes. And I mean, in the, the other scene where she's like, he doesn't dance with me, like where I think she's saying he's gay. You know, I think there's like there, but it's but we don't see the in between of that. No, no. Yeah, you're but right. She like, seems to know without knowing. Right. Like, I mean, that's what do you the, think? Does she know? Well, that's the whole thing. Like, you know, she has that final scene on the phone with Ennis after he's dead. And Angley had her do two takes of it, right? Like in one take of the phone or she's breaking the news that he's dead and lying to him about how he died. He was like, play it like, you know. And then in the second take, he was like, play it like you don't know. And then he took those two takes and he edited them together to make it kind of very confusing. So we never know. And she's not even sure what he decided to choose in that performance, like whether she knows or not. What I don't like about that from Anne Hathaway's perspective is she didn't really make a choice about it either. Yeah. Um, but she, you know, I think when you hear her talk about that, she's like, well, I let Aang make that choice because he knew the text. But I, well, let's talk about this ending because I think not the very, very ending, but the ending of how uh, how Jake Gyllenhaal's character ends. Do you believe that he was beaten in a ditch as like, because he was gay, like it was a hate crime? Do you believe, I'll throw out my three options for you. Do you believe that, uh, that that's just Heath? imagining the thing that he lives with. Um, and then and then finally, how much do you think Anne Hathaway knows? Oh, that's interesting. It didn't occur to me that that could be Heath's imagination. Like he's listening to her words and picturing something else. I, I believe that the, there is an element that could be very true to that because, because we only see it in, in the flashback on the phone conversation. And that's the fear that Heath lives in. His whole life is dictated by that. There's whole life choices are dictated by not wanting to be that guy who is beaten and left in a ditch that he saw as a child. So it is, you can say, oh, it's foreshadowing. You could say, oh, it's his own thing. You could say, oh, he was killed that way. I mean, and I, I think the conventional wisdom would say like, yes, he was killed in a hate crime. But I want to ex- at least explore the idea that that's Heath bringing, I mean, it's definitely cinematically told that way. I mean, now that you've opened the door, I want that to be the case because I don't want this to be a relationship movie where the quote unquote lesson, which I don't think is the intended lesson, is that like being gay will get you killed and ruin your life. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. want that to be what happens. For some reason in my head, I had rewritten it that he gets killed in Mexico. And I was like surprised to remember that that's not what happened. I end. agree. Yeah. But I like thought like he went to Mexico too much and something happened. But what we know of his life at this moment is he's in a quiet relationship with David Harbour and for some reason lying to Ennis about it and saying he's actually sleeping with Anna Ferris, who is so great. Oh my God. Can I just play Anna Ferris in this movie oh. really quick? Because like to see 
Anna Ferris in this movie. I feel like we've also been robbed of some Anna Ferris, to be honest. I know she's alive and she has plenty of time ahead of her, but Anna Ferris is wonderful. She just stopped doing mom, so maybe we'll get more of that. Maybe we'll get more of that. And that's my fault. I haven't seen that show. I should. I should. But I just, ugh, she's wonderful. Anyways, Anna, really quickly, I just have to. Here she is. Anybody would want to fall in love with her. And then I pledged Tridale at SMU. And I sure never thought I'd end up in a pokey little place like Childress. But then I met old Randall here at Nagy Game, and he was an animal husbandry major. So we've been here for a month, and he got the foreman job over at Roy Taylor's ranch. Like it or not, here I am. Did you try, Dale? I was captain myself. Well, even though we ain't quite sorority sisters, we just may have to dance with ourselves, Lorraine. Our husbands ain't the least bit interested in dancing. They ain't got a smidgen of rhythm between them. It's funny, isn't it? Husbands don't never seem to want to dance with their wives. Why do you think that is, Jack? I don't ever give it any talk. <laughs> want to dance? I mean, can I just say, as you're pointing that out, like, you know, another movie that we debated whether or not it should be in this thing is uh, Lost in Translation. And that's another great uh, Anna Faris performance. You know, such a such a great one. She's so good. She just shows up and she makes every movie a little bit better when she's given room like this to be funny and strange. And like, I I don't know. I think she has so much versatility that we haven't gotten enough of yet. But I digress. Um, But yeah, we know that like, Jake Gyllenhaal is in this relationship with David Harbour, and he seems to be pretty serious about him. I mean, it, uh, his own dad twisting the knife on Ennis by saying, like, he was talking about coming up here with that guy. So if that's what happened, we don't know if anything happened to David Harbour. Like, if it is, well, if David that is- Harbour is open to it, right? Like, David yeah. Harbour is on his level. He's He gets it. He knows it. He makes a move, like an aggressive move to him. And in many respects... Maybe that is the better relationship for him. Well, yeah. I mean, because that's what really stood out on this watch is it isn't death that drives him apart. Like, it isn't death that ends their relationship. It's their lives are what end this relationship. Their lives are just gone in too far opposite directions and they can't be together anymore. You know, they have that gigantic fight when they're at the last time that they get to see each other cupping. You know, when he's like, I wish I could quit you. I don't know how to quit you. That fight. Tell you what. We could have had a good life together. Fucking real good life. Had us a place of our own. But you didn't want it, Ennis. So what we got now is Brokeback Mountain. Everything's built on that. That's all we got, boy. Fucking all. So I hope you know that if you don't never know the rest. You count the damn few times that we have been together in nearly 20 years, and you measure the short fucking leash you keep me on, and then you ask me about Mexico, and you tell me you kill me for needing something I don't hardly never get. And what's so powerful about how that fight ends is Angley gives us like these two kind of scenes right in parallel. First, he shows us like them as a younger couple and Jake watching Heath right away in his face, just being full up with love. You know, like I love this man and it's quiet and he's not overacting it. It's just there. And then the second time he's watching Ennis drive away and there's no love in his face anymore. Like it's just been crushed. Like Ennis has hurt him too much by not being with him. Like, he's tired of putting his whole life on hold for, like, these little summers. And you get a sense then, even if he didn't die, it might be over. Like, that might be it anyways. I yeah. mean, is that how you felt? Like, that that maybe that's it? Like, they're done no matter what? I didn't feel like that was the end. But I felt like it was the end of the fantasy. 
right, of what they could be. They were always waiting for if this and this happens, then we could do this. And I think Jake in that moment is like, I need more and we may meet up again and I will always love you, but you cannot be this person that I need in my life. And that's, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, like who are the exes, you know, who are these people that, that do this to you? I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there is somebody that if they can't meet you, you got to cut bait. And I feel like that's what he does. I don't think either are over each other, but I think that that's a moment where Heath is like so internally wrestling with himself and going like, I don't know. I'm so torn. I want this to go on, but I can't like, this is like, it's, I mean, this is why this is, I think this is a movie you can only really tell in the sixties because it needs this kind of, there needs to be a, a societal impasse for him. Like he can't get over it. And it's sadder for Heath because he has nothing else to fill his life with. You know, like mm-hmm. he's not trying to find love again, really. Like he's really yeah. not like, he's a guy who seems like he was born in loneliness, you know, talking about like, being isolated from the time he was a teenager when everybody in his life like died or got married, like his siblings getting married and marriage already leading to a kind of loneliness in the way he talks about it. And that's how he winds up. Like he can't, like he can't help it. Like, and he's made all these choices to try to keep people in his life, to try to keep his daughters in his life and not to hurt people and not to push people away completely. And yet in doing that, he's going to wind up alone again. And it's so sad. Whereas like, you sense that Jake wants to live and will be making these like choices to live. And this is maybe what the whole movie, you know, underlying is, is like by trying to be someone he is not, he wrecks his relationships with everybody he's around. So when he's trying to protect, he's protecting himself, but to what end? Every little, every relationship is destroyed. Every single relationship. And, and you don't see that on Jake's side, you know, like he is living in a world where he can't be who he is, but yet he is doing it the most that he can. And I think you see that with like when his parents tell him, like uh, when his parents tell Heath Ledger, like he was up here with the other guy, they're going to do this thing. Like he found someone who would, and even his parents begrudgingly are okay with it. But I think they're like, I think they're thinking about his mom is, I think his mom mom is, is, I don't know about the dad. Yeah. I don't know about the dad, but yeah, look, they didn't kick him out. They let him go in his room. Like there is something, and you're right. Like, I don't think the dad is ever going to be, but there's something about it where you feel like he told his parents, this is who I am. This is, or they, or they knew, or there was a, they're not rejecting him. And like he, in many respects, represents everything that Heath wants. I mean, he does have a relationship with his parents. He does have this interesting relationship with David Harbour. He does have an amazing, like an amazing relationship with Heath. Yes, he's still afraid. He doesn't have a great home life, obviously, but there are these things like he still can be even when he wrestles for masculinity with the father there like he plays the game he does it well he doesn't bunch the dad like he there's when you look at the two of them you're like well he's figured it out it may not be it's not perfect because of the time damage you know absolutely but if you told me i had to live one of these lives i'm living jake gyllenhaal's life a million times more because at the end of the day Heath Ledger's just alone in a fucking trailer you know in the middle of nowhere with a fucking shirt. And, 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 you know, that's a beautiful, beautiful moment, but I'm not to underscore, but that's what he, he's alone with a fucking shirt. You know, the way that you describe it, like there's not, I would say a moment in this film where either of the men come out to anybody. 
They never, mm-hmm. they never come out to anybody, not even to each other. Like when they talk, they say that they're not gay to each other. Yeah. And yet in this world, everybody knows. Like it's almost like the thing they're afraid of doesn't matter. It does. It Of course it does like in the actions and the, and the consequences of what happened to them, but that they're living this life of secrecy. And yet Jake's parents know, like their wives know, like it, without saying the words, the truth is still there. You know, the truth never seems completely hidden anyways. And so it makes the whole thing have this extra, extra layer of just tragedy to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I'm going to say something here too. It's like, I know that they know, and again, I'm always walking on eggshells in these conversations because I know I'm not always saying the right things, but I'm saying like, they don't even know, like, I don't think of myself as being heterosexual. I just think of myself being like, this is who I love. This is who I am. This is who I'm interested in. It's like by getting rid of the labels, they're almost embracing like the, the purity of it. Like, no, I love, I'm attracted and I love you. Like, and I also feel like there's something where Jake is like, I'm attracted to Anne Hathaway and I'm attracted to Alma. I'm just like, but I'm not going to love you because my heart is not here, you know, and I'm not, I can never give you my heart. And you have these two women who've given up their lives their their soul and and maybe David Harbour is actually the best. Maybe David Harbour lives the best life because his wife seems to be the happiest, right? I don't know. Well, maybe they're still newlyweds. Maybe she'll get yeah. worse. But yeah, I mean, the way you're describing it, like the fact that this movie, I think, got boiled down to the quote gay cowboy movie seems so yeah. ridiculous because I mean, well, a they're not even cowboys. There's no cows in this movie. But b oh come on, like I mean, there's so many sheep. There are so many sheep. It, it is well, sheep insane. boys and cowboy. There's nothing there's a sheep boy. Uh, yeah, a lot of sheep. It's insane how many sheep there are. Like in some of the vistas, I'm like, that is like the sheep. By the way, that's my that's first as many sheep, extra like, you Oh, really? Which sheep yes. are you? I am. Uh, I am the one that has something stuck in its foot that uh, Jake oh. puts on his lap and pulls the, the like the thorn out. Yeah. So you get kind of tenderly cradled. Yeah, and I actually put a thorn in my in my um, in my paw for that, and you know that was like yeah. my, my method acting on this one. Oh, that's beautiful. Did you do that Thank because you. you wanted to be the one who got cradled? You were like, if one of these sheep is getting cradled, that's me. Yeah, I mean, I would love to get yeah. on that. By the way, I love Jake Gyllenhaal. Can we just say, like, yeah. we're talking about, like, we give a lot of props to Heath Ledger and that. I will say on the level here, like, Jake Gyllenhaal is one of the most fucking interesting actors. Mm-hmm. I, like, I am, like, he, to me, I think he's under-respected. Because what he is doing, like, when you see him in Nightcrawler, when you see him in, like, Oh, I love even, Nightcrawler. Oh, Nightcrawler's so good. Like, Prisoners, or is he, he isn't Prisoners. Like, there's, he just fucking picks cool directors and works like he's doing it like and i know like you know i know who knows i i don't know him as a human being but i know like when i heard him on um that show mystery box starley klein show he just seems great when i've heard him on howard stern he seems great but he's a guy who i'm like you know he's done it like you know he could have done anything like he could have gone the other way as far as like a big yeah. hollywood they tried to shoe him shoehorn him into it they're like i don't even remember what what prince of persia and he was like oh, okay yeah. okay i'm not doing this anymore no but he's prince like a persia guy but it's so cool it's like when you look at i mean when you look at his thing it's like prisoners donnie darko broke back nightcrawler and then he's like spider-man 2 and he's fucking great in spider-man like he's great in spider-man 2 have you seen that you should see it for that performance. Yes, I think so. I mean, honestly, now I just want to like take him and um, Robert Pattinson and put them in little boxes where they'll never get hurt because I want to keep them. Oh, I love them. And, and by the way, the other movie that I love so much, I talk about it all the time and, I'm, and this is my end of my Jake rant, is End of Watch. I think End of Watch is a oh, great, yeah. great movie. Uh, Zodiac, Anna obviously. Anna Kendrick too. is so good in that movie. Yeah. Oh, so good. But yeah, so I don't know. Like He's a guy who I'm like, I'm always kind of really impressed with what he's doing and- 
and yeah. and the directors he's working with. I just like, you know, I look just forward to, to watching him, him grow up. Right. He's I think we're going to get to watch the guy like continue to grow. I say grow up like he's not like a full grown adult, but. That I picture my life as a moviegoer having Jake Gyllenhaal movies in it until I am 90 years old. Can I do yeah. that? Yeah. No, I mean- And, and his eyes like, will still be like all Peter O'Toole just like blinking out at you all bright blue. What I also like about him too, and I'll just say, now I'm really going gaga over Gyllenhaal, uh, Gyllenhaal uh, is he seems to have a sense of humor about himself. And that's sometimes rare with an actor that like who does so much serious work. Like he just seems fun and light on his feet. Like again, Spider-Man, like he seems like he's having so much fun and, but you hear him on shows and he's like on Jiminy Glick specials and he's, you know, like he's on John Mulaney's sack lunch bunch. Like he's just like, he seems like a guy who's just like, yeah, I'm up for this. I'll do a play. I'll do this. I'll do like, I, I just like that. We need more of that. Like that kind of like great actor willing to take chances can still do a big movie, but also like just makes interesting films. I mean, give me a velvet buzzsaw if that gives me a nightcrawler or give me a, like, yeah. just do it, do it all. Well, everybody's just so good. I mean, Michelle I think, Williams killing yeah, it in this movie. Oh, like, she's great. Uh, it was interesting to kind of remember that this was appeared in their career where like nobody was taking Anne Hathaway that seriously as an actress yet. Same thing with Michelle Princess Williams. Princess Diaries. Yeah, she, she was Princess literally, Diaries. Michelle Williams was Dawson's Creek. And they were like, this is what broke them out. And they have become, I think, two of our most significant actresses in this generation. And like that is directly, I believe, due to this movie. I mean, gosh, Michelle Williams is seen when she's challenging Heath to the trout test. I, lo- I love that scene. And I will say that there's another scene in this movie, too, when she first catches them kissing. There's so many moments on faces here. You know, Ang Lee really lives in in small reaction shots. Like when, you know, she asks to go get a, you know, get me a pack of cigarettes and he's like, yeah, 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 I'll go. You have them. Did the camera just kind of follows her in? Like there's so many moments where you live in her face. And she's got no vanity about it. I mean, I think like in their Thanksgiving scene, how they have her costumed in a dress that makes her look like her breasts are balancing on her knees. You Mm -hmm. know, like they dress her in these horrible ways and she just goes for it. It, And it's funny because this is the year where I think of as like, my iconic Michelle Williams, where she goes to the Oscar for Brokeback Mountain and she's wearing, I would believe that any girl listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about, the yellow dress, that yellow fucking dress. Oh, the red lipstick, like peak, peak, peak Oscar glamour. I think that is still like one of the top 10 Oscar dresses of all time. Anyway, we should talk about the angle of it all. I mean, there's a couple of things I think are really important. Like one, this is the movie where Ang Lee wins his first Best Director Award at the Oscars. He's won two of them now. Uh, the other one is for The Life of Pi. And it is wild because he actually, when he wins this for Brokeback Mountain, he becomes the first uh, director of color to win the Best Director Oscar. And that is wow. not that long ago. That is insane. Like he was a huge deal, even though his career had gone through like some wild, like ups and downs. I mean, he did... Crouching Tiger. Then he did Hulk. He was thinking about quitting the movies. And then he decides to do Brokeback Mountain. I mean, his own story, I think, is really, really romantic in its own way. Like, he's a guy who himself had lived a life where he wasn't trying to follow, like, the exact role model template of, like, you are the breadwinner and your wife, you know, takes care of you. Like, he came to America to, you know, study film. And he had wanted to be an actor, um, but when he got here, he felt like he didn't know English enough to be an actor. So he became a director instead. And then he went to NYU and he met Spike Lee. Like he worked on Spike Lee's graduation film. Like they have this whole history together. 
And then he falls in love with his wife, who is a microbiologist. And so for the first six years after he graduates film school, he does not get any job. You know, he's like the broke, starving artist already with this pressure on him for like failing his dad by going into this kind of career in the first place. And his wife supports the family for six years and just like believes in him. He at one point decides like, okay, I can't do this. Like her in-laws whole like a thing, kind of like what happens to Jake Gyllenhaal here. They send her money to give to him to open a Chinese restaurant just to be like, have your husband do something with his life. This is getting old. And he doesn't take it, He, but he does decide, fine, I'll study computers. I guess I'll study computers. Okay. Will that make them happy? And he's miserable and he hates studying computers. And his wife just comes home and she's like, there are people studying computers already and they do not need an Ang Lee to do that. And wow. she just keeps believing in him. And so I love that he comes to this project already, I think, having respect for like the strong women and how they also shoulder the weight of their husbands. I mean, I think that this movie giving so much time to the wives is part of its strength, you know, because it's not just focused only on the romance romance. It's focused so much on like the broader destruction. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I was thinking about this movie in context of what we were talking about last week with love and basketball. You know, that is a movie that is like, sometimes you have to make compromises, you know, to be in love and to be happy, you know, And this is a movie where the compromises you make for your own happiness, for your own life, like lead to you making everybody miserable. Can't you think about it like, not can't you, like we've been arguing this, but don't you think that most directors make movies about themselves, right? And and they see something in it, like this is not about Ang Lee being a gay man, but it's about Ang Lee making compromises or not making compromises. And the idea being do I live the life of who I know I want to be or do I live the life of what I'm supposed to be? And, and, you know, coming after Hulk, it is interesting that this is the movie because this is, this is more of the Jake Gyllenhaal choice. And maybe Hulk was more of the, uh, the Innis choice. You know, that's so true. And I think now that we have like this decade and a half of distance and this movie less and less feels like the button topic, quote unquote, gay cowboy mm-hmm. movie, it feels more universal, I think, in general, because like we're not distracted by the wild think pieces of the day. I think it is more open for you to find your own way into the movie and just see them as people because we're not looking at them as like archetypes or what is this film standing for? or What is this film saying? Like what it's allowed to kind of stand and tell the story that it really is saying, which is. Yeah. Which is about like how to be in love when you can't be yourself. Let's talk about the final shot or like the last couple of shots. Like. You know, we open up on Heath Ledger in this, you know, getting off a bus in this wide open field, small man in a in a wide open space, almost like the world is in front of him. What choices will he make? And then we end, you know, besides ending in the trailer, I really want to just focus on ending in the closet. I mean, there's no more clearer metaphor than Heath Ledger being in the closet. And just that moment of him, a big man in that small space, kind of trapped and then you kind of revisit it, you know, a second later, his daughter's like, I'm getting married. I'm, I'm, I love this person. And he's in another tight space, small trailer, tight space. And he, and she leaves to go be happy. And he, in the, uh, once again, in the closet, I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And the metaphor is so clean and we see him in that way. And we just see a man completely in a box, like literally in a box. Yeah. I mean, these open vistas that they have when the two of them are young and feels like they are riding horses through limitless promise. All he wants is to be outdoors and to be in love. And he gets nothing at the end. I heard it was actually Heath's idea 
traverse the order of the shirts because when he finds them in uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's bedroom, they're folded on the hanger so that Ennis's shirt is on the inside and Jake's mm-hmm. shirt is around it. And he decided for that last shot, he wanted to flip it so that now his shirt was the one hugging Jake's, like he was holding him close. Oh, it's a beautiful movie, man. I mean, it really it's is beautiful. Like a few years ago, Ang Lee won like a gigantic AFI award and it was Jake Gyllenhaal who gave one of his introduction speeches. And I really loved what he said. Like he talked a lot about Ang Lee's use of silence. And it had me thinking that part of where I feel like I see Ang Lee in this film is that he and the movie both don't say much to say what they want to say. And Jake was kind of talking about how that approach really just fits him as a director working with people. You know, the the way that he would work um, on scenes is like he would rehearse the actors. And then on the day of filming, he wouldn't say that much. He would be like, they know what they're doing now. Like, I don't need to tell them to kiss each other. They know what they're doing and I can just trust them. But I mean, so look, we've talked about it. Like, we know this is a huge hit. We've talked about the the general response. But what was the critical response? Was it pretty much still positive? It was. I mean, the critical uh, response was very, very positive. But there was a piece that I wanted to read. It's kind of it's a think piece that came out right before the Oscars um, by a film critic that I actually happen to know uh, fairly well. David Ehrenstein, he's in Lafco with me. And he himself like is a gay man who writes about like gay filmmaking, about filmmaking of people of color. And so he felt like this film, he likened it to um, To Kill a Mockingbird in an unflattering way. So okay, I will read that. Arriving at the climax of a cultural moment that includes Will and Grace, Mary Cheney, and above all, Ellen, Brokeback is a shrewdly crafted, quote-unquote, prestige picture, aimed like a heat-seeking missile at the same female viewers who made Queer as Folk a cable hit. The movie is not daring or edgy or even particularly controversial. It's not about gay liberation or the radical politics that would transform self and society. What it is, is a well-closeted romance, replete with studly leads smooching and muttering about quote-unquote feelings. There's a lot of quote-unquotes in this. Um, In ways sure to set aflutter those feminine hearts longing for a soft core version of hot man-to-man action. Mm. And then here's where he likens it to To Kill a Mockingbird, which he just believes is like a film that's all about making people feel well-meaning and patted on the back and satiated and doesn't actually do anything. Um, So he says, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird delicately bypass the actual history of the civil rights movement and the African-Americans who lived and died for it to tell the story of a good non-racist white man. In 2006, the real descendant of Peck's tasteful, unthreatening liberal restraint is not Clooney, but brokeback director Ang Lee. This movie-making chameleon capable of navigating from sense and sensibility to the Hulk is neither gay nor a cowboy, and therefore in Hollywood terms, perfect for telling a gay love story uncontroversially set in the pre-AIDS past, utterly removed from the political moment whose success made it possible. Lee positively glows with Atticus Finch-like temperament. He's gracious and modest to a fault, just like his film. Safely kept in a closet of breathtaking visual beauty, decorous dramatic restraint, and utter ahistoricism, the gay cowboys of Brokeback are stoic and safe. And thus the man who brought them to the screen will be rewarded for services rendered to what the celebrated anti-cowboy Gore Vidal calls, quote, the United States of Amnesia. Interesting. What does that even, I don't even know if I can break that down, but yeah. I think what he means by United States of Amnesia is that we rewrite over the negative parts of ourselves that we don't want to remember and soften everything and make it palatable and fuzzy. And I think he feels like this film pulled punches and didn't really get into like the actual brutal truth of how it lived in order just to make people feel well-meaning. I don't know. I mean, he seems to really believe that like women also watch this movie to get their rocks off, which I don't think is true. Maybe. I mean, I'm open to people saying that they did, but like, 
there's a bit of projection on the other side, but his point about like, you know, him writing as like a black gay writer saying like, you're just trying to make people feel good who didn't live this story. I feel like I want to at least listen to. Right. You know, and I think this is a movie better served to be watching now in 2021 because the stigma is gone, like you said, and we can just watch a romance movie that doesn't need to do more than anything else. <sighs> That's sure. I think this movie also had to make its own compromises, not having that many kissing scenes in it and not like putting kisses in the advertisements. This movie itself had to come out a little bit compromised to exist at all. And are we okay with that? Like, I mean, there's also something to say about, I guess, and maybe... Again, I'm put, maybe putting my foot in my mouth, but there's only so much that a story written by someone who's not gay and a film made by someone who's not gay and starring two men who are not gay can do and say. Like, it's a catch-22 because I think there's a part of this story where the reason why it got the attention it did, the reason why it made this money is because of those stars and the fact that they went there and did this thing that at the time was a very bold artistic choice. But there's also something about the story where you're like, well, I would like to have someone who is maybe is a little bit more attached to this material, can bring something a little bit more to it. And it doesn't matter how much in character you are, because these characters are very beautifully realized. I think the story is beautifully told, but there are those facets that you probably will never get. You know, it's sort of like, you know, Quentin Tarantino could make Sorry to Bother You, you know, on some level, but it's not going to be the same thing that Boots Riley is bringing to it. And I just think that that like and I think that different perspectives can really imbue something or or label something or bring something to the fold. And this is what we wrestle with. And what we're wrestling with right now is like making room for those voices to tell these stories, making sure that, you know, we're not doing a disservice. And I think this movie doesn't do well. Look, to him, it does. It does do a little bit of a disservice. So it can be true that if we did this movie for the first time today. Like, if it was a new script that we did, we would probably cast and direct it differently, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I think I mm-hmm. think that is definitely true. And I think that movie, I'd want to see it. I definitely want to see that version of it. And yet, it, I don't think it takes away from the fact that this movie had the power that it had and maybe had to exist, even if we wouldn't yeah. do it the same. I mean, Ang Lee has always said for himself, his strength as a director is that he has always felt like an outsider. That being an outsider gave him the empathy to kind of watch and learn and explore other people. And if, if, if life has changed this much in, you know, the 15 years since this came out, I hope in the next 15 years, this conversation isn't even as much of a conversation. That is just sort mm-hmm. of a given. The way that I think having a story about two men in love is now more of a given. I mean, you know, but look at look look at Love Simon, which came out in 2018 and it's a giant hit. And it's now spawning its own TV show on Disney Plus. But I guess my question is, in this grand scheme of things, is this the movie that we send up, you know, where we have 100 slots? Do we show this to the aliens? I mean, to be honest, I think it's a pretty high contender. I really do. I think I think that there's so much depth in this film, you know, about how to live a life, just how to live a life that I really respect. Not to mention the fact that it's absolutely beautiful. As far as performances are concerned, like, I love these performances. I love this story. It's beautiful to look at. It's a high contender for me. But I would also want to make sure that our list is representative of more than this being the defining voice of this. I want to make sure that we continue to strive and and open up and hear different voices, too. I agree, because I think there is something in me that's a little bit nervous about, like, if we only have, like, one romance about two men in love, does it have to be sad? Because I I do feel like that is, yeah, yeah, that's a common 
could have we had to go through like the making of the tragedy movies before we could just get to the normal of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all. Well, Amy, this has been a fascinating conversation and I know there's so much more to talk about, but we got to wrap it up and we have to get ready for next week because next week we didn't pick the movie. Our listeners did. And there was a very, uh, a lot of back and forth here for what the listeners pick is. There's so, this field is so big. It's so open. Um, I know we got a lot of love for getting like love and basketball in there. I think a lot of people love chunking espresso. Like, we've tried, we've tried to go out of the realms of just rom-coms. Uh, and here are the top four and our winner for what we'll be covering next week. You know, Paul, I'll go one better. I will read you the top eight from Descending Order. So coming in at number eight, The Thin Man. An excellent choice. Oh, I'm so bummed we couldn't do that one. I I know. We'll get that back in. Wally, then Moonlight, then Portrait of a Lady on Fire, then Before Sunrise, then Harold and Maude, then The Big Sick, and then finally our winner. The Princess Bride. Wow. Look, those are great. Eight great movies. Would have made a great series. But I'm excited to get into Princess Bride just because William Goldman and Rob Reiner and this cast. And uh, once again, a completely different tone and tenor than everything else we've talked about. I have been wanting to do The Princess Bride since we did the original AFI list. I am so excited. All right. And we will see you next week for Princess Bride. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.